This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. Are you an intrinsically happy person, or do you wrestle with sadness and melancholy? Subjective well-being, or happiness, is complicated. It seems to be easy for some people and much more difficult for others. We all know those folks, maybe even ourselves, that have advantage of resources, opportunity, or physical health, and yet they still struggle to find joy or happiness on a regular basis. My guest this week is Dr. Lisa Walsh, who's an investigator, a data-driven investigator, and she investigates how our emotions, personality, technology, and our culture impact our lives, in particular, our well-being. I hope you enjoy this timely and very important conversation. And now, please enjoy Dr. Lisa Walsh on the QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one, Dr. Lisa Walsh. Lisa, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to having a cool conversation with you. I appreciate it. I, um, I'm so glad I came across your, uh, a number of your articles because I'm in this journey. My audience has heard this from me before mm-hmm. uh, about an experience I had in January, and I'm not going to belabor it for them, but just I ran into a person who is a cancer survivor, and we spent some time at dinner t- talking about his experiences and researching this topic of in his, the way he described it, of gratitude. And mm-hmm. Some of the some of the books that he's read is there is a mentality that you can some people are naturally grateful their life circumstances or their genetic makeup or whatever just leads them but not everybody is in that boat and and so he started on a journey as he went through this two or three year as you can imagine life altering uh, experience felt like he had a lot of life left but even if he wasn't able to live it out he wanted to make sure that he expressed how he felt. And this phenomenon was happening as he was expressing, whether it was sort of in his personal meditation or to people, living or deceased, a phenomenon began to happen in him, in, in just sort of his, his makeup, his, his biology, his, you know, uh, all these different things. And so it really got me interested to see, well, was that really just, you know, an emotional response or is there something to it? And I just began for myself going on this journey, um, I began getting intrigued by, look, there are some things that you can do as a human being to manipulate your environment or that maybe you should avoid that really does impact negatively your perspective. So anyway, that's how I came across you. And um, somehow we tricked you into thinking that you would enjoy this conversation. You came on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, that uh, those are really interesting thoughts and insights. Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like your friend was tapping on a couple of things. So trait gratitude, trait versus state. We talk about that a lot mm-hmm. in gratitude research land. Uh, so yeah, some people tend to be inherently or innately more grateful than others. Right. Uh, they just tend to see the things in their life that are good, or the things that have been given to them by other people recognize that good things are in their lives. They come from an external source. That's usually sort of the most cited definition of gratitude in the literature. And then there's also this idea of state gratitude. So you can be a grateful person or not a grateful person, but you can be any kind of person and feel grateful for things. 
uh, for people, for things, for various uh, aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's that's interesting that he had hit upon that uh, initially. Yeah, so we basically, what's interesting, so uh, really I come from this well-being science background where really I'm interested in sort of broadly the who, what, where, when, why, and how of happiness. And a lot of that literature really focuses on these things called positive activity interventions, the goal of which is really to how can we make people happier? But of course, as researchers, we're not just interested in making people happier. We're actually interested in in studying happiness and understanding it. So usually we'll manipulate various aspects to try to increase happiness and then study aspects of that. So one of the most uh, well-documented, heavily studied interventions in the literature are gratitude interventions. And really what those involve is trying to induce this state of gratitude and looking at sort of what outcomes does it impact. And uh, across the literature, we see all kinds of different things. People tend to feel happier, more satisfied with their lives. They have more positive emotions like joy and contentment. They also tend to feel more socially connected to other people, like they're less lonely. They have more connectedness to people in general or the person to whom they're feeling grateful for. Uh, and people have done all kinds of studies. So we think, see things even to downstream physical health consequences, uh, so forth, so on. So yeah, so positive activity interventions, specifically gratitude interventions, we use to induce this state of gratitude that sort of uh, you mentioned earlier. Are, are the words interchangeable? If I say mm-hmm. happiness, to me, I'm not a researcher or an expert in this, I feel like that's more um, temporary. Like it can... I can live in a state of gratitude or gratefulness or thankfulness, I, I guess. I, it feels like um, whatever that that sort of underlying deep, almost joy, kind of a like a, a decision I'm going to live grateful for, even though that my temporary circumstance may be lumpier than that. I live in America. There's nobody that's invading my country at the moment. Like these are the things, I, I, I have opportunities in front of me and I can I can run through a list of things and it gives me a state even while I'm driving down the freeway. You guys don't know anything about freeways there in LA, but here in Atlanta, it's pretty crazy, <laughs> right? But even the, but that can be temporary. You you can leave your home uh, grateful, go to the, your concert tonight, be irritated on the way there, right? You can your emotion can fluctuate. So are they interchangeable, or or are they really all the same? Mean the same thing? Do you think? Yeah, you ask an excellent question. So usually the, so when we study well-being or we call it well-being science, uh, well-being or happiness, we often use the terms interchangeably, but really the, the, the definitions we use as psychology, we often call it operationalizing a construct, which is just a nice way or a fancy way of saying we're trying to figure out what are the things that are indicators of a particular psychological uh, phenomenon. So Essentially, with happiness, the subjective well-being is the psychological term. It usually comes from this researcher. His name was Ed Diener. And when he started out, he defined what he called subjective well-being or happiness as really three components initially. So really, it was like two, and then one is broken down into further. So the two large components are there's an affective component or an emotional component, and then there's a cognitive or evaluative component The emotional component originally broke down into sort of positive emotions. I feel joy, contentment, happiness, and negative emotions. I feel sad, depressed, blue, angry, those types of things. Uh, 
And then the evaluative component is life satisfaction. So how satisfied are you with your life in general? A few years later, he came back and he added to that this thing called domain satisfaction, which he kind of put into that life satisfaction bucket, which really talks about how satisfied are you with the various domains of your life. So this could be your health, your family, your friends, uh, your career, so forth, so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the interesting thing about that is, as you talked about, like, emotion, you know, happiness feels like it's a transient thing. And so when you look at the emotional or the affective component of well-being, it is, you know, we tend to we often will ask people to sort of report on their emotional states, maybe right now or over the course of a week, but there are all these, uh, what they call daily diary studies where they'll follow people over time. And you can see, you know, moods and emotions vary, right? Something happens mm -hmm. and I feel happy. Something bad happens and I feel unhappy. Mm -hmm. The cognitive component of well-being, sort of the life satisfaction, domain satisfaction elements of it tend to be more stable over time. So, uh, you know, if I ask you how satisfied you are with your life today, and I come back and I ask you maybe in a couple months from now, those ratings will probably be pretty similar. Whereas like from day to day, your happiness level could be drastically different. And of course, this is just one definition of well-being. So Diener's is often the most popular used in the research, but many people have come up with hosts of different definitions of what really psychological well-being entails. And a research project I'm actually working on at the moment is trying to pull in all these various well-being measures, everything from domain satisfaction to life satisfaction to happiness to things we often talk about, hedonia or eudaimonia. Um, hedonia is supposed to, is like feeling good. Eudaimonia is I am a good person doing good things for the world kind of action. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're trying to look at sort of like, what are the indicators of well-being? What is well-being versus what predicts it? Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so it's it's a complicated <laughs> issue and question that people still debate about it. But most, but there are sort of these two components to well-being: one that's more transitive, changes, and one that's more stable. Hey, I want to ask about the predictive element for a mm -hmm. second. But first of all, I ha I wrote this down earlier because as you were talking, I was just sitting there imagining. Um, I, I forgive me for asking, but I yeah. think you told me you're married, correct? I am. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Um, and uh, I I'm just imagining. My wife, I, my wife has, I've been married a uh, little over 35, 35 and a half years. So since Hi. the dawn of time, we got married when we were seven. And um, when she, she goes back to school from time to time, it could be psychology. She's a fine arts, um, very creative person, Japanese, Irish. So this kind of crazy, Hi. cool combo. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it's pretty crazy cool. Every now and then I get her mad at me. She comes at me like a spider monkey and I get scared. She's one third <laughs> my size, but I got to be careful. But uh -huh. I find her doing her experiments. Like mm -hmm. if she's back in school doing some kind of psychology or she's doing whatever, all yeah. of a sudden she brings the classroom home. And I'm just imagining your poor husband as your <laughs> Yeah. I wonder if you do that. Like it bring any of the tools that you learn or the things that you learn to yeah. um, you know, I don't know if manipulate's the right word, but just sort of run an experiment at home and he looks up and he's either joyful or not joyful and you're sitting there making notes mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know <laughs> baby i changed the names it's no big deal yeah. do you ever bring it home and uh, experiment with it or uh, worse yeah. pull out some of your scientific terms look you're doing this because you're in a cognitive space babe <laughs> you need to yeah he's used to it by now um, <laughs> but... for my husband he is and what we would call an innately very happy person yeah uh, so honestly, he's often more of a case study to me. Than else. Uh, one of the things we talk about with positive activity, so you know, I talked about like trait versus state gratitude. Right. Many 
positive activity interventions out there are really designed to, to what we see innately happy people do. So we tend to see that innately happy people tend to be more grateful. So, okay, right. let's say these people who are less happy and make them feel more grateful and then they feel happier, you know? Right. Um, so he's definitely, I mean, I feel like he illustrates the literature more often <laughs> than not. I'll be like, oh, he's doing this because he's that, you know. Do you ever get irritated with him for being in such a good mood and so uh Oh, not at all. Actually, I find it, you know, it, it is true. People tend to like to be around happy people, you know. It kind of boosts our mood. Uh, right. People tend to gravitate towards naturally happy people. And I, I definitely see that, like, I just enjoy being with him, hanging around with him. And I, I see that when other with other people in our social groups as well. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, he, he definitely is used to me going off that all kinds of, uh, you know, nerd things. I mean, yeah. I think at some point there used to be a drinking game about like, there's a study about that. You know, I, just, I can't stop bringing up studies. Oh, there's a study that showed this. Uh, like, oh, oh yeah. Again, a study, Lisa. Um, funny. but yeah, it's fun. As you start breaking it down scientifically, you know, some of this, it feels like I don't know that I could describe the difference, but I can, um, I know it when I see it. Like I can, I see people that just kind of have a vibe. I experience people that have a vibe that um, uh, the word content comes to mind. And I see them like, man, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm content. Would it be cool if we had more or if it was different or whatever, but, but I'm content. And there's a, um, there's a, artist who became very well known, more broadly well known over COVID. His name is Charlie Mackesy. Have you ever heard of Charlie Mackesy? I'm not. Really interesting guy. He's a British. And I discovered Charlie a number of years ago. I think he's the first person I ever speaking from a pulpit that had to have the F word bleeped out from, uh, and he wasn't trying to be obnoxious. It was pretty funny. He's a really interesting guy. He was in this story he was talking about, I think it's related to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He had grown up as an atheist in um, London, and he goes through his reasons why this is my personal journey. And through a series of circumstances, he ended up in Africa. And mm-hmm. he, is, uh, um, he was living literally in a hut with a family that was kind of sponsoring him. And he couldn't understand why this woman, the matriarch of the home, Every day, it was a hard. It wasn't an impossible life, but it was a hard mm. life. What we would consider in the West hard. They had to walk a pretty good distance. I don't think it was ten miles, but you know, three football fields away to get water and to bring it back. And there's mm. no air conditioning or heating. Like you're you're in one step above a mud hut. Mm. And this woman had so much joy and so much kindness and so much. Um, life. And life was hard. It wasn't Pollyanna. It was hard. And her kids, you know, there were circumstances and craziness. And he asked her, she was one day, what are you humming? Or what are you singing? She's like, well, I'm, I'm singing a, a spiritual hymn. And she was a believer in God. And he was like, why? I think she was a Christian, but, but, but believer in God. Mm-hmm. He, he couldn't understand. He's like, why? Why? I'm looking at your life and these hard things and these things that have happened to your family and whatever. And she wasn't coming across, Lisa, as someone naive or mm-hmm. um, uh, fooling herself or whatever. And she's like, look, I'm grateful for these things, and I'm grateful that God's had this experience in my life, and, I'm, and, I, and I choose to li- live my life in spite of these other things. <clears throat> and it so shook his foundation, he later went on to become probably an unusual believer in God, but certainly a believer in God. But it, but it was the start of a journey for him to shift his mind. He is a naturally 
melancholy, this is his words, a melancholy, skeptical, um, and there are reasons why, but there is just sort of a genetic predisposition as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, when you, you pique my interest, when, I, when we hear this story by Charlie, mm-hmm. um, and he went on to write a really cool book that has nothing to do with religion, but it's about kindness and love and re- really well-received. I think you'd really enjoy mm-hmm. um, this artist. He's very quirky. He's very British. Mm-hmm. But it's um, sort of this journey, and I just thought, wow, because of this thing, and then him deciding and starting to set up 666, um, things that would help him get out of his melancholy mood. He's not hes not saying it's easy, and he doesn't always win the melancholy battle, but he is putting specific things in his life to help him really see in a way that he's grateful for. And not just that it could be worse, but to celebrate the things that he has. Yeah. How is it in your research when you look at that, those sorts of things, and I'm sure you've come across many, many stories Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that people put together to help them to evaluate in a way that it it it, it brings relief to their heart and just to their how they process the world? Yeah, wow. There's a few directions I could go with. Let's do them all uh-huh. one at a time. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Well, so I can relate to that experience of Charlie's. My husband's from Singapore, and at some point we went and lived there for a while, which is a really wonderful country. And we started traveling actually all over Southeast Asia. Right. Well, we lived there for a while. And yeah, I had that experience where, you know, we went to Cambodia and there were people who were living a much harder life than I right. had ever seen or experienced. And I, I do think there's something to that idea that, you know, sometimes seeing um, the experiences of other people who have so much more hardship or adversity than you, that it can kind of make you more grateful for the things you have at some level which it's almost like a gratitude by subtraction, right? Right. If I subtracted these aspects of my life, it would be harder. I'm grateful for the, for the opportunities, benefits that I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly too, you know, humans that we tend to believe that there is, you know, humans are sort of tend to be innately happy, more happy than not. Uh, we do see in, you know, there's all these cross-cultural comparisons from, you know, very industrialized countries to developing countries and we do tend to see that people who have, you know, that higher income countries with more resources and things, people do tend to be a bit happier than in uh, the countries with less, but not as much as you would expect. You know, um, I, the other thing is this, this concept that we often refer to called hedonic adaptation, or it's often called the hedonic treadmill. The idea being, you know, we often pursue things because we think we're going to make them happy, right? Why do I want the promotion? Why do I want that new car? Why do I want to get married? I think these things are going to make me happy. And uh, my former doctoral advisor, Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, has a great book on this called The Myths of Happiness. But essentially, you know, oftentimes when you get those things, you know, maybe they do make you happy for a little bit, you know, your happiness might be a seven and you get that promotion you wanted and now it's an eight, But over time, and it varies based off of the positive event, over time, you kind of adapt to that and it becomes the new normal and you sort of revert back to your baseline happiness and then you want more. Um, So, you know, it would also explain, you know, why people who are so much better off uh, or people who are worse off, you know, um, might still have relatively similar levels of happiness because they have sort of this base base set point that they kind of keep returning to mm-hmm. though obviously you know certain thing certain life circumstances can affect that obviously mm-hmm. uh so that's one thing oh i guess the other thing i would add is um 
I mean, this is maybe tangential, but I still think it's an important one. So interestingly, in when it comes to gratitude interventions, right, these things we use to, to try to induce gratitude and make people feel happier, there tends to be two primary interventions that we use in the literature to you know, manipulate gratitude, happiness, and study it. The first one uh, is called counting blessings. It often gets referred to as gratitude lists. That, so that's what if we just ask participants to sit down and think of it varies three to five things that you're grateful for. Uh, you know, some people just write lists. Some people try to add a little bit more detail about what are those things that they're feeling grateful for. And then the other intervention, which we've also used a lot in uh, my lab, are gratitude letters. So that's really um, an interpersonal gratitude where we're asking people to think about something someone has done for you, a benefactor who, you know, went out of their way to do something to help you. It could be a teacher who spent extra time, time trying to help you perform your perform better in class, learn more. It could be a coach who helped you go that extra mile. It could be your parents who sacrificed a lot for you. And we get them to write a letter of gratitude. Sometimes we get them to share it, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, we have been looking at things of like different types of gratitude, varieties of gratitude. So there's often interpersonal gratitude. So this idea of like, I'm grateful to a specific person for things they've done for me versus general gratitude. Like I'm grateful for the positive qualities of my life, right? Like I'm grateful that I don't have to go fetch water, right? I'm grateful that I have running water in my tap that I can turn on at any moment. Right. Uh, and two, sometimes people even then move that into gratitude towards God, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for even like the beauty of nature or blessings received. Certainly gratitude is a, is a big thing you see appear in a lot of world religions right. as well. Uh, so we've kind of looked at various types of that to try to see um, whether one might be more beneficial than the other, mm -hmm. that type of thing. Is there a, how lasting, I wonder, so if you, like, do you trick yourself or is there a way, one of the things that the impression I got uh, mm -hmm. from this uh, person I met mm -hmm. was he, he began to, um, prayer's the wrong word, almost meditate on or a reciting of, man, I've got, I've got these things ahead of me and I have these. And he was not a, a wealthy person or anything like that. He was just a person that um, had things to be grateful for. And, and it was, what was really interesting was as he worked through sort of this list and kind of meditated on it um, regularly, I don't know if it was daily, but regularly, it was, um, he said, it literally just transformed. I, I just began really living in a way where I didn't have to sort of trick myself into having a, a normal state of um, grace. For example, some of, the, some of the outward, for somebody who had met him, was, man, you just seem to be more, um, I don't know what's the right word, sanguine, just kind of just relax. Like you could take mm -hmm. hits a little bit better. The, mm -hmm. the surprise distraction or frustration uh, d doesn't knock you off your feet as quick as it used to, or it does me. And that's degrees for people, I suppose. But yeah. the big idea there was, as he walked through these different things, he said, look, it feels like it's sort of a personal or a permanent change in me. Like I've, my mind has shifted and this isn't a temporary to your point earlier of, oh, look, I got the, I got a promotion or I've got the, the, the thing, the thing I'm chasing. Mm -hmm. It was sort of, man, I've landed in this, in this sea of goodness 
and I finally recognize it. It was there, but I finally recognize it, and I'm allowing myself not not so much. This was a really important distinction he made to me. Not so much that I deserved it, because forever in his sort of his own mind loop, because um, you can get narcissistic this way. Well, of course I deserve this. He said, no. It was more of a thing of grace. I didn't necessarily deserve some of this stuff. I mean, why me? Some of these things. I could have been born in a a different gender, a different age, a different color, a different time and place. But but I'm here now, and I'm going to learn how to be grateful and extend grace, and also look for opportunities to help people around me to the degree that I can. And there's just, there was literally something about this guy that you're like, wow, is like the best proselytizer on the planet. I wanted more of that. Do you, in your studies, do you, do you experience that? That's interesting. Yeah. So, well, so what's interesting about sort of what you described, this gratitude meditation. So we, you know, mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, we know that that's also related to well-being. There've been a number of studies showing that people who meditate tend to have better well-being, whether you're looking emotional or life satisfaction, et cetera. Uh, interestingly, I know of gratitude meditations. I've, I've seen them, but I haven't seen gratitude meditations specifically studied. Mm-hmm. Certainly the way he's doing it, kind of looking at this, you know, all these, you know, this place of gratefulness, this list that he sort of revisits, certainly that probably does a great job of thwarting the sedonic adaptation, right? I don't need to chase more because look at all this that I already have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could see that being really satisfying. Obviously we know mindfulness meditation also can kind of give people that calm Zen sort of, mm-hmm. uh, emotional, uh, state. So it's interesting the two together, I haven't seen any specific gratitude meditation studies, but maybe that should be a future direction yeah. <laughs> that we look at. What was cool about him was it wasn't that he wasn't ambitious. He mm-hmm. is ambitious, but it felt more like, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it felt more mm-hmm. like, man, I'm, I've, I'm have I'm so glad I'm alive and yeah. I'm in this journey. Mm-hmm. And I love that I have these milestones, whether it's income or influence or um, he, he's a builder and he does uh, some other stuff. But whether I accomplish those or not, I'm not allowing affect my happiness. I'm certainly motivated and I'm and I and I love to do these things as part of my, life's work. I feel like I'm good at them. I've got the aptitude and the attitude for them. Um, but it's not, oh crap, if we didn't get that contract or if that thing didn't finish exactly on time, like there it goes, I'm out. My, you know, my gratitude status is done for it, right? No, it's, it's all of these things. And he has these temporary moments back to happiness of I'm mm-hmm. happier or less happy. Mm-hmm. Um, First. But in terms of his foundational thing, and he said, you know, I really... I think my innate nature was I was a grateful person, but I really didn't focus on it. I, I tended to be a positive person, but I really didn't focus on it. But when my life kind of got in a very serious way focused because of these health things, and I realized I didn't always communicate how I felt either to the universe, gratitude for the things that came my way, not because I deserve them, but just because I was here and also to express to the human beings around me, even if it's somebody I don't know, I'm just in line and they, they reached up and got that thing off the shelf or they, you know what, you've got four things, I've got 12. Um, we still do that in the South here in Atlanta. I don't know if they do it out West all that much. I'm sure they do in some places, but like just this kind of, uh, 
You know, by the way, I don't know if you've heard this term, bless your heart. I just learned the other day, that is not a compliment. People are saying, bless your heart to me all the time. What I found is that's just a Southern way to say, oh, you're an idiot, but I don't want to be polite or I don't want to be impolite. But anyway, so I heard the phrase, I, but did not know its significance. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, well, that's right. And I was just, I thought all these gals were being polite to me, but no, they just were <laughs> amazed that I could operate the door. But they, um, as you, in your research, as you sit there and do this, have you learned tools for yourself or your subjects to say, look, if I put these things specifically in place and I practice them, mm-hmm. kind of like if I practice judo or if I practice uh, whatever, I practice scuba diving, I go through these things and I practice them, I get better at them mm-hmm. to a degree where you can manipulate your own internal mechanisms so that you have a state of, or at least an improved state of happiness, joy, gratitude. Do you find that? And what would some of those tools be? Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, no pressure. No, no, of course there's a ton of tools that certainly we could talk about. It's just too, as you were talking, a few things were coming up that let's talk about that first. And then let's definitely, well, so what's interesting too, is, um, sort of, again, the, the processes you're describing with this person, it, the, so one thing that we also know about humans in general too is negativity bias. So we tend to attend to the negative things. There's a famous paper by Baumeister called "Bad is Stronger Than Good." Uh, right. We're really good at focusing on you know the negative problems, and in some ways that's adaptive, right? You know, if you're in the jungle and a tiger's chasing after you, you should focus on that, not the pretty right. butterfly, right? Or a tiger's chasing anybody, right? It doesn't right. have to be chasing you. There's a tiger. <laughs> Scatter. Sorry, sucks for the slowest exactly. person. So in some ways, focusing on the negative helps you problem solve. Um, right. And the thing that is great about, you know, counting your blessings in life or thinking about what's good in your life is it can help sort of counteract that a bit uh, and help you kind of not focus as much on the negative and look towards the positive of life. That's another one. The other one that uh, interestingly came up, I think you were talking about social comparison, right? Some people are like, mm-hmm. I have four things. This person has 12 or keeping up with the Joneses, which is also right. often related to hedonic adaptation and things like that. So we, you know, social comparison is actually pretty bad for happiness. Uh, my advice, my former advisor will tell the story all the time about uh, when she, one of her first studies on happiness was looking at sort of social comparison. And when she started out, she'd had this theory that, um, you know, people who were happy would compare themselves potentially to people who were worse off than themselves, whereas people who were unhappy would be constantly comparing themselves to people who were better off than they were. And interestingly, she found that for unhappy people, they were comparing themselves to people all the time. But for happy people, they, they you would ask them the question of who do you compare yourself to? And they were, they were kind of, you know, confused. Like, I'm not right. really thinking about who I compare myself to, you know? Um, so that social comparison of paying attention to what other people have and what you lack can certainly um, drive some of that unhappiness. So, yeah. So in terms of then activities and things you can do, I guess, sort of where you stopped there with the the bigger question. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a wealth of what we now call positive activity interventions or sometimes called positive psychology interventions out there. Gratitude is one of the tools in the toolbox. There are many, many others. Uh, Some of the best resources, if people want to look into this for your your audience. So again, my former advisor has a great book called The How of Happiness, which talks about sort of, it has things like person activity fit, where you can fill out and sort of figure out which activity might be the best for you in terms of increasing happiness. There's another app out now called Happify. Have you ever heard of it? Mm -mm. 
So Happify is interesting in the sense that uh, I think they have a subscription model. I, last I checked, I want to say it was $5 per month. I don't know what it currently is. But essentially, they they have these things called tracks, which will help you deal with things, everything from like stress or getting better at work. But they also have in their back end sort of you can go in and do all these different positive activity interventions that they just host to kind of help bump you up a bit. Mm. And then uh, so actually, I think I have it on my desk. The other one that I really love is this. Uh, it, I don't know if you can see the lettering, but it's the Greater Good Toolkit. Okay. It's essentially a box made by the Greater Good Science Center. And it provides 30 activities for people. So the first one that they have is the gratitude letter, obviously one of my favorites, um, which I study that one a lot. Uh, so everything from that to, you know, 29 other activities that people can do. And they're little cards that you can kind of just take out and read. A lot of them involve writing activities, you know, write about your gratitude or write about, you know, positive things that might happen in your future. So expecting positive things like looking forward to a trip or there's another intervention called best possible selves where you envision what, you know, your best possible future would look like. Imagine everything's turned out well and write about that and kind of mm. visualize that that can make people happier. Uh, other ones that we've used a lot in the lab. So kind acts is another one where we often ask people to do acts of kindness, usually all three per week, all three in one day we found. So from previous research success might be the optimal dosage, although future research might change mm -hmm. what the optimal dosage is. But so this is things like, you know, buying a cup of coffee for the person lying behind you, or maybe tip your barista, mm -hmm. uh, other things like, you know, making a meal for a family member, helping a friend move. Uh, and we tend to see really interesting things with kindness. So yeah, that tends to make people happier. We have some really interesting work in our lab that's recently shown it actually has impacts on your gene expression. So we took, we collected blood in one study and we essentially found that people who did acts of kindness for four to six weeks were, uh, they reduced inflammation. So they were, you know, really indicated in chronic disease. Yeah. And right. they were better able to fight off viruses. So, you know, maybe, uh, it's like you know, vitamin C for your soul kind of thing, like the yeah. old, you know, yeah. wives tale. Like if you do yeah. these things, that blows my mind. Same. That's one of my favorite studies. And so we had that one study and then we've recently replicated and that's going to be coming out soon as right. well. So it's nice. Once, if you get it one time, great. But if you can show it multiple times, you know, it's more reliable right. effect. Uh, so kindness is another one we look at. So the thing I will say about positive activities in general, oftentimes as happiness researchers, we get asked like sort of what is the key to happiness? And really seem, the literature seems to be focusing more and more on really it's social connectedness. For humans, social connectedness appears to be the key to happiness. And uh, so why might kind acts make people happier? Because it makes you do nice things for others, which can sort of, you know, help you bond with people, have positive experiences with people, maybe strengthen your relationships with people. Um, gratitude letters, same kind of thing. What are you doing? You're sitting there thinking about someone who did something kind for you and why that was important and why it helped you so much. And that can make you feel like, oh, there's good people in the world who are doing good things for me and other people. So that can strengthen social relationships. A lot of the positive activity interventions focus on the social aspect of things. And of course, too, um, now at UCLA, I'm focusing on friends and family and uh, romantic relationships and how that relates to well-being. And yeah, I mean, across the board, being satisfied with your romantic partner, being uh, satisfied with your friendships, your family relationships, the, the people who have more satisfying relationships tend to be happier than those who mm. don't. Do you ever do that with your husband while you're you're sitting there arguing? You just pull out mm -hmm, satisfaction study, going to make some notes here. <laughs> it's pretty funny. 
you know, I mean, definitely you draw from real life experiences, right? <laughs> you know, like definitely there have been times. Um, well, okay, so here, interesting case study with my husband. So when I first started uh, researching well-being science, um, so I first came across the gratitude letter. So I have actually, I'm a big believer that I try never to give an intervention to people that I myself haven't done. Uh, for the reason that, you know, when you're doing an experiment, it helps to have some insight into like what right. it's like, you know? Right. Um, so at some point I wrote a gratitude letter to my husband and uh, delivered it in the old fashioned way, which was Martin Seligman designed this intervention, which is you're supposed to like read the letter to the person, which is, I think actually in retrospect is kind of an awkward way to do this activity. I don't recommend it. I actually think write the gratitude letter and then use it as a prompt to express your gratitude more naturally. Um, so interesting, as I mentioned, my husband's from Singapore and interestingly, in gratitude letter research, we tend to find that people in Western individualistic societies like the U.S. tend to benefit a lot from gratitude. But when we've tried it in Asian collectivist societies like Korea, we sometimes actually see no effect or even backfiring effects. Like people feel worse after doing a gratitude letter. So my husband comes from Singapore, which is, you know, an Asian right. more collectivist society, though obviously they have strong Western ties as right. well. Uh, and interestingly, I was having like a backfiring effect when I was reading him this letter because it was like, he was just, you know, he was kind of a little uncomfortable, you know, and he couldn't really, he was just like, this is kind of weird. And then after the fact, I walked away being like, hmm, so that doesn't help all people all the time. And uh, I actually got into this whole, one of my first studies, I started working on not just expressing gratitude, but receiving it and witnessing it. So watching other people express and talk about gratitude. And also, again, sort of looking at the social dynamics, right? Gratitude is not just one person feeling grateful to another person. It's also the person who's receiving that gratitude. And does it change if you share it with someone and they are thrilled or they feel really awkward and weird? You know, are there right. backfiring effects then? So, yeah, I definitely think that real world experience can sometimes really inform uh, experiments and, and things that we find out in the literature, which, I, you know, is great, right? Uh, it certainly has been helpful in my work. I, I I love that story. One of the things you talked about was the social connectedness, which um, two things I want to kind of bring together here, the Happify app and social connectedness. When COVID hit, yeah, um, we, we were no longer, generally speaking, socially connected, or we were in, a, maybe we were in a small family unit, but not connected to the larger social unit. And some of those family units are pretty toxic or, or whatever. Right. And so, and you're just locked down. There was a lot of fear in the world for sure. We really had no information except for people were dying and yeah. around the world and we had to wash our groceries and it, you know, it was almost like walking dead. And we were, yeah. you know, at that time, when we go back to that time, we were all, it was almost like a nine one one moment. We were all like, what's going on and how do we not have society collapse and yeah. we were scared and we were isolated. We were isolated for a while. And the mm -hmm. only people who had a little bit of relief were those, um, generally speaking, that had, one, groups to connect to. They were either employed or they had social groups that they could connect to. But they also had the technology to, to do it. I mean, one of the big imperatives coming out of our um, infrastructure bill that Congress finally agreed on something with the president said, look, we need to get fiber and connectedness to everybody in our social spectrum because the consequences of an unconnected world, not just the economic, but the, but the soul level consequences are so catastrophic. It's just, um, it's obscene. We need to do something. And we all agree. So, so that's, we, we recognize that. But one of the areas I know that you have done some research, or at least I believe you is, 
have is the technology and how it how it intersects. And so on the one hand, we've got this idea of the uh, Happify app. There's a really interesting app that I've used that I like um, called Pause. It is a faith-based kind of quiet, meditative uh, prayer, short prayer thing. And these are things that I can use on my devices and I dig them. Um, at the same time, I'm in the technology business and I'm not here to pick on any social media provider or whatever, but to your point earlier about people that are happy or unhappy or vulnerable or unvulnerable, at least emotionally in this area, and I can go out onto these platforms and passively, not even people aggressively getting in my face and bullying me, but I can look at what I believe their life is because people only post the best version of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Look at me and my crew. We're on the, <clears throat> we're doing this adventure. We're doing this thing and we're all smiling and we've got these new things. We don't see the rest of the mess right. around it, right? We just see these things. And it seems like, uh, I, I, I'm going to, say I'm certain without any facts to back me up, but I'm certain just from my children's experience, uh, I'm not very active in these things, but my wife and children are. And I see the negative consequences where they don't have a healthy relationship with these tools. Mm -hmm. it, it can exponentially and so quickly derail their emotional happiness. What's been your experience as you teach through and learn through these technology. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So <clears throat> interestingly, there's actually a debate going on right now about a lot of new technologies, um, especially smartphones and social media in general. Mm -hmm. So some researchers have kind of come out and said, you know, we, we did see these patterns, especially among young people, Gen mm -hmm. Z often, and they tend to be people who were born 1995 or later mm -hmm. that, oh gosh, I want to say around 2010, 2012, all of a sudden we started having in general, looking even at adolescence, mm -hmm. skyrocketing rates of depression, um, suicidal ideation, decreasing well-being. And a lot of people have, you know, or a group of researchers tried to really get to the bottom of what might be going on there. And one of the things they pointed to was maybe smartphones, maybe social media, the fact that we're on right. these digital environments all the time would be harmful. But a number of other researchers have done a ton of research and, and they you know, they have these comical papers that essentially come out and find that the net effect of smartphones and social media uh, is zero, you know, on well-being, especially for adolescents, Gen Z. Uh, in fact, they compare it to other things and say, it, you know, the effect on happiness is comparable to that of wearing eyeglasses and eating potatoes. It's, it's very close to zero. So, you know, it's interesting because I think the world has sort of, you know, already decided that technology is bad. In some ways, I can't tell you how many times because of my dissertation, it was actually looking at restricting smartphones and social media mm -hmm. and how that affects happiness and a variety of things. So like mindfulness, uh, you know, positive, negative emotions, life satisfaction, loneliness, stress, mm -hmm. self-reported physical health. And it was so funny. I can't tell you how many times as I was collecting data, people were like, well, obviously it's going to be bad. You know, right. like they just knew the answer already. Right. Uh, so what we tried to do is we tried to, to run an experiment where we got people, you know, obviously the smartphone, social media, you know, <laughs> demon is out of Pandora's box, so to speak. Right. We're not putting it back. And I, nor would we want to, right? right. I, I, smartphones and social media are incredibly useful to us right. in many ways. But what we tried to do was we tried to get people to restrict. Specifically, we looked at Gen Z. So we looked at young adults uh, about ages 18 to 24, mostly. Mm -hmm and ask them to try to restrict. So we had two conditions and, and we compared them to the controls. One condition was asked to restrict their 
their smartphone as much as possible. So we couldn't cut off people entirely, obviously, if they have to use it for work Mm -hmm. or, you know, what, you know, personal texts to Mm -hmm. contact Mm -hmm. people. But we told them, you know, try to not log into news apps or social media or anything that's not essential. Only pick up your phone if you absolutely have to. Right. And then the other condition we asked people, cut off social media entirely. So it was kind of looking at like, is it social media or is it digital media in general? So social media is a type of digital media. Other things would be streaming video, uh, you know, news, digital news, email, calendar, all of that. You know, even your mm-hmm. clock, your calculator, that's all digital media apps that are right. on your phone. And so essentially, interestingly, what we found in the social media group across all these different outcomes, at the, we asked them to do this about eight to 10 days and came mm-hmm. back and see what effect did it have on their happiness. And for social media across the board, the effect was pretty much zero. You know, we um, and if, interestingly, we actually got a bit of a backfiring effect again as well, where people actually reported higher levels of negative emotions. So at least from you know what we saw experimentally, cutting off social media didn't seem to make things better. And interestingly, with smartphones though, we did see a number of improvements in benefits when people reduced how much. And and interestingly, so we didn't just ask them to report because self-reports on how much time you spend on your phone are actually notoriously unreliable. (laughs) You know, people are really bad at guessing. Thankfully, now Google and Apple have these new systems out where you can actually objectively see. So we basically used screenshots of that and got an army of research assistants to code it for us and analyze it. And we did find objectively people did drastically reduce the time they spent on their smartphones and social media. They still often spent more than I would have liked. I often right. wanted them to be as close to zero as possible. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we found lots of benefits for smartphone, decreased smartphone usage. So things like uh, improved life satisfaction, feeling more mindful, feeling less stressed, um, that we just didn't really see for social media alone. That being said, you know, there's still some more experiments coming out on this. You know, one experiment is not the end all, you know, we'll kind of see what happens down the line. I did see an interesting study recently come out that was showing there might be a just, you know, sort of like a Goldilocks amount, a just right amount. I think they had people keep using as smartphones as usual, cut it off entirely, and then reduce in between. And they found that the, the group that reduced actually was getting happier, but like, as usual, not as good, cutting off entirely, not great. So there might be sort of like a sweet spot, you know, to that as well. Uh, So yeah, you know, I think the problem is, you know, new technologies, I think certainly smartphones and social media are just completely changing our world uh, for, for better and worse. You know, um, I was talking to another researcher who was completing a meta-analysis on social media across tons of studies. And again, he was finding the net effect was zero, but I think that means sometimes the effect is positive. Sometimes it's negative. What are you doing on your social media? What app are you on? Interestingly, we did correlate, uh, baseline usage to specific apps. So we did tend to find things like Snapchat appeared to be, uh, associated with more well-being for people, but Facebook was associated with less. So it might even be specific to the app you're using. It might be specific to how you're using the app, right? Mm-hmm. Are you passively scrolling your Facebook feed or are you actively sending a message to a friend on Snapchat? You know, right. um, it might be the social interaction component makes you feel better, but just scrolling through a bunch of stuff and you're not really interacting with anyone except a screen might be less good, you know, right. of course the verdict's still out. Um, so, so, but it's, it's an interesting new area by all means. And certainly I think it's just going to become more and more relevant as time passes by. Just anecdotally, what I've, for myself, when I use Facebook, I use it to, um, I rarely, I don't want to say I never do, but very rarely 
comment on somebody else's stuff. The mm-hmm. you, And if I do comment, it's happy birthday, so-and-so, congratulations, such-and-such, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mostly I use it for keeping up with the groups that I'm interested. Who's winning the motocross championship this year? Who? What's scuba like out in, uh, you know, Thailand or... Uh, um, nobody scubas in LA anymore, but whatever, you know, who, where, where, what's going on in my disc golf world or what's going on at church or what's going on in my County, what rock concerts are coming to town, things like that. Almost all of my friends, I'm middle-aged in my fifties, almost all of them. And I mean, literally almost without exception after the last two national election cycles have gotten off of Facebook for anything related to political, they just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much tension from both sides. It feels like, right? Like we just gravitate to these things and we get so frustrated with each other. How can you not see it my way? And do I still want to keep you as a friend if you're, you know, like, like, and that's a, that started to get in more intense, but these tools weren't as readily available in the early two thousands with those administrations. Mm -hmm. But mm-hmm. certainly now, since 2016, whether it was uh, the Trump uh, years or now with Joe Biden, yeah. this so I've seen people just dump that. They've dumped Twitter in many cases because they just they can't even guard themselves from their own reaction. It's almost impossible for them to see something and not to, if not type it out and physically respond, emotionally respond and just you know yeah. it just causes them to crater. No, I, those are really interesting points. So this is not my area of expertise, but I do know there are a number of researchers studying this. I, I see them at tech conferences who are looking into uh, these very issues. So I, I can understand people's skepticism with Facebook, especially given what we know happened in the election mm-hmm. after the fact. And I'm sure too, you've heard of Red Feed, Blue Feed. Have you heard about this on Facebook? Mm-hmm. Well, because of the algorithms, you know, Facebook's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. trying yeah. to show you more yeah. of what you yeah. want, you know, what you like, right? For sure. The right. More, so, you know, if you're Republican, the more you like <laughs> things, the more you're going to see Republicans or Democrats, right. the same, vice versa. Right. Um, and, you know, it can kind of create like confirmation bias loops, right? right. Like you're not seeing anything that uh, might counter counterdict what you believe. And maybe it even gets into more extreme side loops. And before right. you know it, people are just getting further and further away from each other. Uh, because everybody's talking to people who, who, you know, are exactly like them and not the other side right. as much right. anymore. Um, certainly, too, I know an issue on Twitter is a lot of the algorithms plan for engagement. You know, basically, the, you know, the more people are texting and liking and responding, you know, the more likely you are to see that on your feed. And of right. course, what um, really gets people doing that is, you know, controversial content where people start battling, you know. Right. Uh, so that people have have identified as a problem as well. Have you ever heard of the Center for Humane Technology? Mm-mm. Okay, so it's run by a guy named Tristan Harris. Oh, Tristan yes, Harris. I have. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yes, yes. So he's definitely looking at a lot of these issues. And I, I love his work for the reason that he is trying to engage people in the tech industry about how do we design technology better? I mean, my personal view is I don't think technology is a a good or bad thing. I think it's a tool and it depends on how we design that tool for for better or worse. You know, I'm right now working on a special issue about the good side of technology where really we're trying to look at how can we use technology to solve problems and help people, you know, rather than just focusing on, oh no, smartphones and social media are bad for us, which might just be technophobia. You know, it's new and we're just 
kind of scared of it. Right. Uh, uh, but I, the thing I love about Center for Humane Technology is they're really working to try to redesign technology and engage with technology to, to make it better, you know, to, right. okay, so we know there's this engagement problem where people start fighting on Twitter and that's the first thing you see. How can we, you know, get rid of this algorithm and replace it with something that's more helpful to people and will make everybody better off, you know? Right. I've seen Tristan a number of times speak and I, I really like, first of all, he's not interested in demonizing. He doesn't inter demonize. Zuckerberg, he doesn't demonize, like that's not his thing at all. He's like, look, these are just business people that are trying to do, they're not the, you know, it's not the Illuminati, they're not out there, these are not these things. We're making tools. Mm -hmm. When we first made cars, do you think Henry Ford was against the human race? Because there's no seatbelts or doors on these things. No, we learned right. over time, we yes. need doors, we need window wipers, we need seatbelts, we need reflective paint on the road. And we get, and there was tragedy and casualties, and we had to figure it out, and we're doing that. Um, yeah. And I think um, in the social dilemma, the documentary that he was part of, they were really good at distinguishing these challenges. And what I love about Tristan is that, um, and it's not Saint Tristan, but he really tries to rally people to say, "Look, when we see a challenge in the technology, the algorithms, and and the desired behavior is not what's happening." Can we just raise our hand so that they can be adjusted? Let's do that. We don't, people don't want to be exploited. We don't want to lead to harm for each other. We know better than this. So I think that is absolutely, I'm a tech optimist. I tend to be optimist slash realist. And I think the role, the benefits for that technology, whether it's these platforms or the cloud or e-commerce, so outweigh the, um, the, the negatives, not to ignore the negatives, we need to address them and do it in an honest way. But it's not just that the, you know, the genie's out of the lamp. I don't want genie back in the lamp. I want to use sure. these tools. Um, but I also think that as researchers like you go and do the good work of, hey, look, here, maybe this is more age appropriate than um, for these folks than for these because their brain's still developing and are you know, the things that addict us as human beings, um, we don't have a maturity level. We do that with so many other things. We don't have a maturity level. And then let families figure out what works for them and their dynamic. But it is a, um, I was curious about in your research, the impact of technology on uh, gratitude and happiness. And it sounds like, look, you know, there are some studies that show this a, a negative and others though that are showing either we've matured through it to a certain degree, or maybe it's not as um, alarming as the other initial studies seem to indicate. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the the seatbelts and cars example, because I, I think that's really true. I think oftentimes people think that, you know, maybe there is some sort of malice in these things. But, you know, I mean, when things like Facebook were being developed, it was a very new technology. They built out functionality as they needed it. And we're now realizing the effects that these things have. It's going to take a little while to, you know, steer the course and change it and for the right. better, you know, um, right. and I, I think we'll get there over time. Of course, obviously there's always the conflict that, you know, <clears throat> businesses with profit motives versus what's good for people and trying to, you know, do, do the best you can for both of those interests. And I don't know if that'll, inevitably be regulation or not. Um, but I do suspect things will get better right. over time as, you know, as we learn more about these technologies and how to use them. Yeah. 
Well, I know we're reaching the end of our time, but I'm curious, how as a researcher do you take all of this for yourself <laughs> and apply it in a way where you're not clinical about it? You know what I mean? Like you're not skeptical or cynical. You're like, look, I know these things. It's almost sort of like, can a magician uh, enjoy magic? Can a, you know, can I, can a heart surgeon ever eat another hot dog again in their life, you know, or, or whatever? Like, how do you apply them for yourself Mm -hmm. Or do you? And, yeah. and um, you know, are you, do you personally, as you work through these, you find the tools that work for you, are mm -hmm. they, uh, are they improving your perspective? Right. That's a good question. <clears throat> so definitely when I first started studying, I mean, as I mentioned, I try not to ever give a positive activity intervention. I haven't tried myself. Right. Even when I was asking people to cut off their social media, I literally deleted all my social media apps for 10 days before I did the experiment, you know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, the thing that's nice about having these tools, you know, again, I could take out a greater good toolkit and use it one day, mm -hmm. you know, if I feel like I need a little boost, but you know, the thing I will say that I really enjoy about studying well-being science, you know, you ask most people, what do they want out of life? And most people say they want to be happy, you know, mm -hmm. and one of the great benefits of being a happiness researcher is I have spent so much time thinking about this issue and learning about all these issues that over time, it does you don't necessarily need a positive activity intervention. Mm -hmm. It's often more of like the big keys of wisdom. You know, I don't necessarily need to write a gratitude list every, every, you know, day or so forth, so on, but I can, you know, periodically take moments and step back and reflect on what are the good things in my life. And I can also, you know, like with kindness, I don't necessarily need to go out and do three acts of kindness today, but I can sort of have this general ethos that I try to be a kind person because I know it's not just good for the people around me, but also good for myself, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like, uh, again, I love what I do. I, 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 it's, it's been, it's a really great career and, uh, I love doing happiness research and exploring new things about it. But yeah, the thing I also just really enjoy about it is I, I feel like I've, you know, spent a long time now really just sort of learning these core concepts of, you know, really how to be a happier, more alive person, you know, right. did uh, you start in off in that Were you, did you come into this as if you were to evaluate yourself as uh -huh. really a pretty positive, um, uh, glass half full kind of person or were you, was this a skill you had to learn? I'm yeah, sure you've honed it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, interestingly, we do tend to see things like people get happier over time, right? So I, I think that definitely applies to me, but it does apply to most people I know. I certainly feel like learning about happiness and researching it, I've definitely honed those tools better and gotten happier myself, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I guess there are some people who are, are innately off the charts happy, my husband being one of them. <laughs> um, I feel Does that like ever irritate you? I a little bit more. No, it doesn't actually. I actually find a lot of joy in it, you know? Yeah. It's not so much a social comparison as like I benefit from his right. happiness, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, but uh, like I said, I, I, I certainly love what I study and uh, I think it's certainly contributed to making my life better and hopefully other people's lives better as well with the with what we find and and get out to people. Well, I appreciate it. We've talked about a lot of tools here today. Um, we'll make sure we include links to those in the uh, comments below. Lisa, thank you very much for coming on the show and taking a chance on this uh, crazy conversation. I really appreciate it. 
course. Thank you for having me. If people want to find out more about your research and what you're up to, where would they uh, where would they find that at? Yeah, probably the easiest thing to do is to go to my website. It's okay. Lisa C as in Christine Walsh, lisaswalsh.com. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And if you've enjoyed the show today, there's a lot of great information. Check out the links below. Follow uh, Lisa's advice and research. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience, everybody. Take care.